0: Before Jesus was taken to be crucified, he prayed for his disciples and for us. He said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. What does this perfect unity look like, church? What does it mean to become one? Gather! It's good to see your faces. Uh, Benjamin, one of your pastors. It's a great honor to be able to say that, as always. So, this one series. This is week two. And we feel like these ideas about oneness, this Jesus's prayer for unity, is is both crucial and timely. Crucial and timely. Crucial because it's in our divine DNA. When when we become sons and daughters of Jesus, that that we live into His desire for oneness, but timely because now, like always, maybe more than ever, the church is tempted to fall into the same traps of division that we see everywhere else in the world. So today, I'm, I'm asking you to open your heart, open your mind, open your ears, your imagination to see what God may be saying today. And there may be some of those religious red flags that go up. I have them too. It's like, wait, hold on, wait, you can't say that. Or what do you mean by that? And I'm just here to say that's okay. It's okay. And if this message stirs something today, then that's okay. That may even be a good thing, a good thing, because this is a safe place where we wrestle this stuff out together, right? Or ask our questions together. It's one of the most beautiful things about this fellowship of believers. So, stay curious. Ask what God may be saying today. So, I need to start with a story about Woodstock, not not the weird yellow bird thing. Is that a bird in Charlie Brown? You wouldn't know by looking at it, but... um, but the the music festival, you know, the, you know what I'm talking about, right? Woodstock, 1969. It's probably one of the most, I don't know, well-known entertainment events of the century in our country. Uh, people still talk about it. Like we we know what it is. We know what it was. Uh, so it was actually 50 years ago, 1969, August. Just a little over over 50 years. A few um, New Yorkers, a few promoters decided they went to put on this festival and make a lot of money. Of course, they ended up making no money. They ended up losing a lot of money because the fences weren't up and people just walked in. Um, so that was that. But So they, they wanted to go uh, upstate New York and just find a, a field. right? So they did. And first, they went to a little town called Wallkill. Wall kill? Not buzz kill, wall kill. But um, once you hear what they did, they're kinda, they kind of are a buzz kill. Um, so basically when news spread about what this, this, this festival was coming to town, the residents organized and did what uh, WASP people do and passed city ordinances right, um, that said that you can't have a gathering of more than 5,000 people. And uh, so they were trying to get around that, and and uh, then they passed a law about porta potties. So then they couldn't have the festival in Walk Hill, Buskill, Buskill, New York. So they uh, they had to find a new place. Here's the only problem though: the festival was like in a month. So they kept looking, kept looking. They finally found this place. This farmer said, "You can use my land." And uh, this was in Bethel, New York. Not even Woodstock. It's like 40-something miles away. But they had already advertised it as Woodstock. So it could have been called Bethel, um, which is interesting because that means house of God. So they found, uh, they found this place, this farmer's field, this dairy farmer. He, they said, we're, we're expecting maybe 50,000 people. Maybe 50,000 people. It's going to be a big one. We're, we're telling you that up front. But they only had three weeks to prepare at that point. So they're working around the clock, building the stage from scratch, trying to get these fences up, getting security, getting food, all these things, sanitation, porta-potties, medical. But time runs out, and people start showing up early. And if you know anything about Woodstock, you know that a lot more than 50,000 people came, more like 400,000, 400,000 people came to Woodstock. 400,000 folks came to Woodstock. So they were naturally overwhelmed, right? And by day two, they were running out of of food. There was one food vendor for 400,000 people. (laughs) Uh, So they ran out of food. So what happened was the locals found out that they ran out of food. Now, the locals in Bethel, New York are farmers, conservative, straight-laced, Farmers. But when they heard that they, these, you know, peacenik hippies had run out of food, they put it out on the radio and everybody in the town gathered food. They gathered thousands of eggs and hard-boiled them, they gathered canned goods, they gathered dry goods, rice and bread and people made sandwiches and packed bags and then had them airlifted in because you couldn't get in by the roads because there were too many cars. So they airlifted all this food in. Now, that's not supposed to happen, right? You have these anti-establishment young folks who are against Vietnam and against establishment and don't like most of the things the government does. And then you have these older conservative farmers. Those groups are supposed to be ideologically opposed, right? It's supposed to be a line between those two groups. But that's what happened. One, one lady named Lenny Binder, she put it like this. This is a direct quote. She said, we would never have said, we don't want any part of you. Leave. I don't care if you're hungry or starving. That was not our community. Maybe we were hicks, but we did do as the Bible says, welcome the stranger. They were hungry. We fed them. They were hungry. We fed them. Last week, Brett did a great job talking about the spaciousness of grace versus the narrowness of dogma and doctrine worship. And he mentioned the idea of this third way. So we're going to talk about that third way quite a bit today. But first, we live in many spaces where dualistic thinking is the norm. And here's what I mean by that dualism dualistic thinking means that many people never consider that there are more than two options right two sides right so in dual, dualistic thinking it would be a there are only two sides and b i'm on the correct side right a, a there's only two sides and b i'm on the correct side and dualistic thinking has its appeal doesn't it it really does if we're honest. Things are tidy, you know you're on the right side, or if you're not, there's a 50-50 chance at least. Um, this type of thinking draws lines that, that define everything that could be, or really is ambiguous or confusing. The word dual means consisting of two parts, right? Literally divided. Dualism serves our desire to control and to be certain and to be safe. It has its appeal, there's no doubt about it. But I'm not sure if that sounds very much like the way of Jesus. We were never promised control. We were never guaranteed safety. And we were never guaranteed certainty about all of life's mysteries. Though mystics and poets and saints and writers and contemplatives and most importantly, Jesus, have been trying to point us to a way out of this dualistic way of thinking, a way out, a third way. Author Walter Wink puts it like this when he's talking about the famous turn the other cheek passage from Jesus. He says, Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. We are not to let the opponent dictate the methods of our opposition. He is urging us to transcend both passivity and violence by finding a third way, one that is at once assertive and yet nonviolent. Jesus, in short, abhors both passivity and violence. He articulates out of the history of his own people's struggles a way by which evil can be opposed without being mirrored Evil can be opposed without being mirrored, the oppressor resisted without being emulated, and the enemy neutralized without being destroyed. So, let's look at a passage where Jesus beautifully, beautifully demonstrates this third way. This is a story where Jesus takes that that dualistic line and pretty much obliterates it. So, let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. The temple, they're in the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And if he would have had a mic, he would have dropped it. Verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up to her, uh, up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Sometimes do you read passages, do you read stories about Jesus, and then by the time you read it, even though you know the story, you just love the guy more? Like what a what a beautiful savior. What a story. And I think there's so much that we can take away from this that moves us closer into Jesus' desire for us to, to be one. So I see three major things going on here. Here's a marker. I found it. I see An invitation to communication, don't tell Melody I used the whiteboard. Invitation, what did I say? To communication, that's supposed to be her thing, for transformation. That's what I see happening in this story. Let me explain so the religious heavyweights the pharisees the scribes the people that know the law better than anybody brought a woman caught in the act of adultery in order to stone her and they bring her to church to do this by the way you know like you do um that's not even funny so actually but it was really actually more about setting a trap setting a trap for jesus They were always trying to get him to say something incriminating, right, so that it could eventually get rid of him legally. So they say the law of Moses says that this woman should be stoned to death. And to be clear, guys, they were correct. They were right about that. It does say that in Leviticus, it does. But it also says that the man caught doing that would be put to death as well. Where was the man in this story? Don't know. So already these Pharisees have a blatant sexist double standard going on. Uh, that's the, the other problem with their accusation. But on to the one that's dealt with here. Um, they're correct about the law. They're correct. It does say that. But remember, our Jesus didn't come to abide by the old covenant, the old law, the law of Moses. He came to fulfill it. And institute a new covenant of love. One that we preached about a lot this year. So in short, what these Pharisees are doing, they're using the scriptures to draw a line in the sand. We're on this side. The law side. The scripture side. God's side. We're well studied. We're confident. We're experts. But this adulteress, she's on the other side. And Jesus Which side will you choose? Boom. Gotcha. False. Jesus is never God, is he? But they're drawing the line in the sand. They're trying to force Jesus to play this game of dualism, to step into their dualistic mindset. But guess what? Jesus doesn't play those games. He transcends all of that. He doesn't play the game of dualism. His mind is never bound by that type of thinking. Thank God. So what does Jesus do with this line in the sand? I think think he erases it. I think he erases it. He bends down and clears the slate. You know, you want to write in the dust when you're a kid, and you kind of like clear it out. And he starts writing in the dust. What does he write? We don't know. And I'm glad we don't know. Because if we did know, We would take that and make it a formula and a recipe and a doctrine and a creed and a law and then hit people in the face with it. So we don't know what he said. But we know that he erases the line and replaces it with something true. I have theories about what it could be, and that would be fun to talk about just if you want to later. Um, But this is the invitation. This act is the invitation into the space of grace that Brett was talking about last week. This was the invitation, erasing the line and pushing out a space of grace, the space of the third way. Lines are meant to divide, but Jesus obliterates the cultural and traditional and religious lines so that the space for grace can be expanded. But notice this, guys. He didn't just push out the space of grace for the woman. It was for the accusers, too. It was for the Pharisees, too. He pushes out a space of grace for everybody there, both sides, because grace is for everybody. See, this is what happens when we refuse to choose sides, when we remember that we don't have to play the game of the line-drawers, or maybe that we don't have to be the ones drawing the lines, this is what happens. We can invite people in to a space, a space for grace and a space for truth. What could happen, dear friends, if we have a church that pushes out and opens up the space for everyone the accused side and the accusing side to encounter the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And, and, and let me just be real, real honest, as always. This is the type of space we've chosen at Element. That type of space. Yes, we have our statement of faith, of course. Yes, many of us agree on most doctrinal things. Yes, yes. Many of us also disagree on many doctrinal things. But beyond that, beyond that is a desire and choice to erase the lines that divide and draw circles of love, to make space for whosoever will. Whosoever will. That's the unifying power of the gospel. That's the Spirit of God that animates us and binds us together. That's the oneness. And that right there, that choice to allow the gospel of Jesus to transcend disagreements and tensions and offenses, if we can do that, we are on our way to the oneness Jesus was describing. Our friend Skip Ross... Uh, Pastor Melody's dad that, that most of us know, they named their, their youth camp they've done for 40-some years Circle A, Circle A Camp. And if you never knew what that meant, it means this. It says, the world drew a circle that left me out, but God drew a circle of love that included me in. The A stands for agape love. A circle, a space, spacious enough to include me and them, and them, and them, and them. And that space of invitation that Jesus opens up here, when we open that space of invitation up too by clearing the slate, erasing the line, that makes room for communication to happen, for communication to happen, an invitation to communication. So... Communication can now happen in that space. Jesus delivers one of those most famous of lines, Let he who was out without sin cast the first stone. Now, hear this: If Jesus had played the, the dualistic line-drawing game, if he had played into that game, he would have lost the ability to speak grace and truth in the situation. Let me say that again. If Jesus had stepped into that dualistic line drawing game the Pharisees had set up, he would have lost the ability to speak actual grace and truth into the situation. But he didn't. He delivered the truth, and the accusers left. And then he turns to the woman and asks who is left to condemn her, and she says, well, no one. And then he says, well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. He delivers this amazing grace and mercy as she leaves. And I know we want to say that He only serves up the Pharisees with a steaming hot bowl of truth, right, while offering the woman, you know, this lavish grace. And that's true, but I don't think that would be the whole truth. See, with Jesus, I don't think Jesus is about balance. I don't think there's a balance of grace and truth with Jesus. He's not battling to find out the right mixture or the perfect recipe of grace and truth. He is grace and truth. He personifies them perfectly. There's a book by Andy Stanley's called Irresistible. It puts it like this. When we attempt to balance grace and truth, I think we have that. Do we have that? Maybe not. Yay! Thank you, Shannon. When we attempt to balance grace and truth, we get the worst of both. Never the best of either. Jesus was not the balance of grace and truth. Jesus represented a full dose of both. He was full on grace and full on truth. He never dumbed down truth. And he never turned down grace. He called sin, sin, and sinners, sinners. And then he laid down his life to pay for their sin. See, I think for Jesus, there's really only ever one line. The line between God and people. And that was the ultimate line that he came to erase. So that all could receive his life and his love and step into the wide open spaces of grace and freedom with him and peace with God. And as we become like him, his life and us, just like he prayed, then we too can learn to open up spaces where the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth can flourish as one. Because God's grace is the truth. God's grace is the truth, and the truth is offered inside the space of grace. They go together. Well, think of it like this. Think of it like, like tea. I went to a meeting recently down at, uh, what is it called, Buddy Brew, and uh, I ordered green tea, and they're a place that, like, does it right. You know, they do it right. They make all their drinks right. So it took, like, five minutes to make my green tea, but I watched the whole thing. Uh, But think of it like tea, right? Without the tea leaves, it's just hot water. Without the hot water, it's just tea leaves. But when you pour the hot water over the tea leaves, you get tea, at least eventually. You get tea. So the hot water is like the truth. The tea leaves are like the grace. When the grace is steeped in the truth, they become one. Not a balance, but all of both in harmony, you see. The grace and love of Jesus infuses and flavors the truth. We tell people the truth because we highly favor them the way that God does. We speak the truth of grace, and we speak the truth from grace. Let's write that one down one-handed. We speak the truth of grace, and we speak the truth from grace. Does that make sense? You can say yes. yes or no. Either one. Just like Jesus did. But with line drawing dualism, there's no need to communicate. There's no need. There's no need to engage. There's no need for relationship. Because the rules have already told the story and closed the book. Right? It's cut and dried. But in the space of grace, of the third way, communication has a chance. And from communication, that can lead to communion. And from communion, union. Communion is defined as the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. So again, communication can lead to communion, which can lead to union. What could happen with a church like that? A church that deliberately opens up and sits in the spaces of grace, sits in the spaces of tensions between different camps. A church that then chooses to communicate into that space grace and truth, making room for all to engage the gospel. That is the space we choose at Element. That's the Jesus way. So, we have an invitation that Jesus erases the lines and writes something awesome in the sand into a space of grace, out of dualism, so that communication can happen in grace and truth. But for what? For what? Why did Jesus want us so desperately to be one? I think so we can get to the place where transformation is possible. Now, we can't make that happen. We can't make it happen for ourselves, and we surely cannot make that happen for other people. We can't make people stay in the open space of grace. We can't make them communicate. So we can't force transformation either. But like Jesus does here, we can usher people toward choosing his way in an open space where grace and truth can thrive. We can walk with them. We can stay with them in the spaces as long as they will stay. You know, Jesus didn't condemn these Pharisees. He didn't act as though it was his job to make them leave or to make them change or make them repent of their pride. He spoke the truth of grace and the truth from grace. And in doing so, he affirmed the woman, her value and dignity and belovedness, but also for the Pharisees too. He told the woman to go and sin no more. He's saying you don't have to do that anymore. You're free because there's no condemnation for you. He said, go and sin no more because there's no more condemnation for you. Not because your sins were so bad, not because the Bible says so, but because the truth of His love and mercy is what was true in the absence of condemnation. This was the truth of grace and the truth from grace. But guys, we don't know what happened here. Like so many stories... In the Bible, we don't know if this woman did repent and receive the transformation that Jesus had brought her to, the threshold of. We don't know if the Pharisees walked away and some of them repented of their sins and received transformation that He was offering them. We don't know. And we can't always know. We can't make sure that everybody has a sitcom journey, right? At the end of the episode, all the sins are repented of. All the problems are healed. Oh, good. Moving on to the next one. We got one. Everybody's on their own journey. And redemption says that all those journeys toward the mysterious heart of God are beautiful. And we get to walk with people in that. So Jesus gave them a choice. We don't know what they chose, but He always does. When people encounter Jesus, They face a choice every time. He always leaves it up to our own dominion. We talked about earlier this year. With the gift of his truth and grace. What do you want to do with it? His fight was outside of the lines in the sand. He didn't succumb to the temptation of dualism. He didn't adhere to a limited this or that mindset. He didn't draw new lines or try to forcibly separate people from their sin. He was interested in erasing the line, the line between God and us, and he did. So, that's our fight too. We will fight to open and hold and expand the space for all to know and be transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? For those who were caught red-handed in obvious sins and brought low, for those who can't see their hidden sins of pride... Or their acceptable, socially acceptable sins and failure to love as Jesus loves for them too. For the Pharisee, the leper, the adulteress, the addict, the priest, the child, the human trafficker, the missionary. Our little ones, our elderly. Whosoever will. Our fight is not to go out and expose where everyone is wrong. Woe to us if we choose that path of warmongering and line drawing and verbal violence and exclusion, woe to us. Our fight is to hold the open spaces, to push out the spaces for people to enter in to encounter the radical, transforming, never-ending grace, mercy, love, and truth of Jesus. That's what he did. So, church, are we going to be line drawers or space creators? And if we're creating spaces, are we going to invite people into those spaces? Even when it costs us, because I'll tell you now, it costs us to fight for and hold these spaces open for people to be invited in and communicate and have a chance of transformation. It is costly, but it's the cost that we choose to pay. Those are the costs we choose to pay. Are we going to facilitate communication that could lead to communion and then to union? And are we going to speak the truth of grace, the truth that people are favored by God and loved by God? And are we going to speak the truth from grace? to all those that will enter that space. I think, I think we have, and I think we are. Imperfectly, but willingly, faithfully. I see it every day in, in this body, every day. I see you choose it, I see you faithfully fight for it. I see you process it, I see you boldly wrestle with it. Let's keep going, let's keep going. The third way, the Jesus way, opening spaces for people to encounter the love and truth of Jesus. Ben, you guys can come on back up. And we're going to pray. Father, thank you for being a God of space and freedom. Thank you for the truth of your grace. Thank you for giving us the greatest gift of all time, Jesus, your son. Jesus, thank you for showing us a new way to live. Thank you for stepping outside of our small games to show us the way of the Father, the way to the Father. Jesus, thank you that you are God and that if we see and know you, We see and know Him. Spirit, please teach us. Spirit, please engage us. Spirit, challenge us and encourage us. Let us be patient and gracious with ourselves and patient and gracious with one another as we journey toward the mysterious, beautiful heart of God. Show us the truth about where we have drawn lines. Work out the life of Jesus into our lives so that we can be one with Him and one with each other so that all can see who He really is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.